We'll go ahead and take your Bibles and open up to Matthew chapter 9. There are generally speaking two topics that every preacher knows he can preach on and bring instant conviction to the people he's preaching to. Those topics would be prayer and evangelism. Already I can see you squirming. The good news for us this morning is that both of those are covered in our text this morning, so buckle up. We focused on prayer as a part of the culture of our church, and now we turn to focus on cultivating a culture of courageous evangelism. And prayer and evangelism are really tightly linked together, as you'll see in the Word of God this morning, but it is imperative that we understand that one of the marks of a healthy church, of a church that is seeking to please the Lord, is to be an evangelizing church. And just the very nature of evangelism requires that we embrace the idea of courage and boldness because what we know to be true is that evangelism is not for the faint of heart. It's not easy. And evangelism of the Lord Jesus Christ, the declaration and and testifying to the good news of the gospel is something that our culture often rejects and often hates. The call to evangelism often feels somewhat like the call to go to the dentist for a checkup, doesn't it? You can either make excuses and put it off, I've avoided going to the dentist for significant periods of time in my life, or you can grit your teeth and get on with it and get it over with, and that's what many of us do when it comes to evangelism. But there is another way to think about evangelism. There is a healthier way to think about evangelism in the Christian life, where we talk to people about Jesus, not because we feel we have to, but because we genuinely want to. We long to. We're excited to, even though it's tough, even though it's painful at times. That's what we're after as a church. That's the kind of culture we're trying to create as a church when it comes to evangelism. We don't simply want to be the kind of church that evangelizes strictly out of duty because we're told to. We want to evangelize out of delight because we get to, because we see it as a privilege and a blessing, because we see it as something that is desperately needed, because we see it as something that we have been the benefactors of in our own personal lives, that someone was bold enough and courageous enough to come to us at some point in our lives to tell us the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that truth changed our lives. This is the privilege that we have as a church. And Jesus speaks about evangelism in Matthew chapter 9. This is the the verses that are attached to our distinctive of this side, courageous evangelism. Matthew chapter 9 verses 36 And I'm going to read all the way down to chapter 10, verse 5, and we'll look at it together this morning. Let's back up to verse 35. It says, And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these, first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the Cananean, 
and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. And we'll end on verse six, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Here we see Jesus Christ himself calling his disciples to a courageous evangelism. This was to be one of the distinctive features of their life and of their ministry, and it is to be one of the distinctive features of our lives and of our ministry and of our church. First, notice this from this text. A culture of courageous evangelism requires that we seek the heart of God. It's fascinating that as we look at this text, we see Jesus Christ, God in flesh, God incarnate, and what we see leaping off the page in the very first verse is the very heart of Jesus towards the people he ministered to. It's incredibly important to grasp this because there can be no true evangelism where there is not the true heart of God. In verse 36, it tells us this, that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion He sees the crowds and instantly his heart breaks as he looks at them, as he sees their problems and their pains, as he sees their distress. It's important that we first understand what compassion actually is. The word here actually refers to a visceral kind of emotion. In the the Hebrew and in the Greek, there there is a sense that it's attached to the bowels, to the very pit of your stomach. There, There is this deep pain and deep emotion that Jesus experiences as he looks at the pain and sorrows of the people around him. He sees all of their hurts and all of their burdens. He sees all of their plights and all of their problems, and here we are told that he has this deep emotional response. How is compassion actually fostered? How are we to embrace the heart of Jesus, the heart of God? How are we to experience this kind of deep emotional response to the the plights and problems of those around us? I think actually part of the answer at least is actually in this text. Did you notice what it says here? It says Jesus saw the crowds. In other words, we can read past this and miss this. Listen, Jesus was actually looking at the problems of the people around him. He was actually, get this, this is really important. He was actually looking at the people around him. Now that's really important for us to actually understand and rethink in our individualistic culture. We are so introspective, we are so self-obsessed that very often in our lives, and every one of us can admit this, can't we? We fail to see and to recognize what's going on in the lives of those around us. Sadly, many of us don't care. But Jesus, he saw the crowds. He was among the people around him, the people that he ministered to. He was rubbing shoulders with them. He was seeing their lives. He was hearing their pains and hearing their problems. In fact, if you just kind of flip back in your Bible one page, the kind of context leading up to this This passage is really important. You see, Matthew has just loaded up on on stories of Jesus ministering in very practical ways to the people around him. And I I just all I want to do is just show you some of the subtitles. Some of your Bibles are going to have ones that are similar to this. Um, They should, just beginning in verse 8. And the subtitles, they're not inspired, but they just tell us what exactly is happening in the passage, try to give us a bit of a summary. So just notice this, verse 8, my Bible says this, Jesus cleanses a leper. And then he goes on to talk about the faith of the centurion. And then in verse 14, Jesus, look at this, heals many. 
In verse 28, Jesus heals two men with demons. In chapter 9, Jesus heals a paralytic. In chapter 9, verse 18, a girl is restored to life and a woman is healed. In chapter 27, the subtitle of my Bible reads this, Jesus heals two blind men. And then right before our passage, in verse 32, my subtitle of my Bible says this, Jesus heals a man unable to speak. I, I just want you to see how involved Jesus was in the lives of the people around him. I want you to see that Jesus, he wasn't just somebody looking from afar, he was somebody who was rubbing shoulders with the outcasts and the dregs of society, of those who were down and out, of those who were in legitimate pain and with legitimate problems. He saw their problems. People flocked to Jesus with their problems constantly because they knew what they would find in this man was a heart of compassion. What they found in Jesus was not a, a king or a Messiah who is turning people away but inviting them to come. In Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, it'll be on the screen behind us here. Listen to this. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and noticed the language again, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. In chapter 15, verse 32, he says this, and Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. I really do believe as I look at my life and as I look at our culture that one of our greatest problems today that we face in the church is that we can often insulate ourselves from the plights of others. We can live in our isolated bunkers, also known as our houses, entertaining ourselves to death as a way of avoiding truly seeing. The truth is that we actually, many of us, don't like seeing others struggle. It makes us feel bad. It makes us feel guilty, and we don't like experiencing conviction when we do nothing for those in need. So, what we're inclined to do in our sinful flesh is to remove the triggers. We try our hardest not to think about others' struggles. That's why, by the way, we so often like to keep our conversations superficial. When someone starts actually opening up about their problems, we get uncomfortable. We're inclined to give them pat answers, brush them off with Christian platitudes and cliches. And I just wonder, when you think about how your God and your Savior Jesus Christ is to you, aren't you glad he doesn't do that to you? Aren't you glad he doesn't isolate himself away from your problems? Aren't you glad that he invites you to come to him with them? There's nothing too small, nothing too trivial. When you come to God with your problems, when you come to God with your pain, God never says, sorry about that, I'm too busy. I'm too busy to listen to this little problem that you have in your life. He never says, oh, you think you've got problems, huh? He never brushes us off. He never avoids heavy and hard conversations. He always, always has compassion. We sung it in the third song we sang this morning, an allusion to what the scriptures remind us of. Listen, listen to the compassionate heart of God. The scriptures in the Psalms say that he actually carries, he holds our tears in a bottle. He catches our tears. Do you get that? Every tear that falls from your face the God of this universe knows about and cares about. The book of Revelation reminds us, listen, that one day 
our King Jesus is actually going to wipe every tear from our eye. The very beginning of this morning's message, when we think about evangelism, here's what we need to be reminded of. Listen, that we need to seek the heart of God. We need the eyes of Jesus. We need to see people the way Jesus sees people so that our heart can break like his heart breaks for them. If you want to cultivate compassion for those around you, I think you need to take a, a page out of Jesus' book. You must genuinely care about the people around you, and one of the ways you care about people around you is by actually being around the people around you. Getting into their lives, inviting them into your life. If you're just looking for some practical advice about how to cultivate compassion, let me give it to you like this. Invite an unbeliever into your home. That's a staggering thought. Some of us have never had a believer into our home. Did you just think about that for a moment? Did you just think about the example of Jesus being around unbelievers? He wasn't afraid to eat with sinners, was he? He wasn't afraid to rub shoulders with the worst of the worst from the society's standpoint. In fact, he was constantly engaging with those that the Pharisees and the religious elite said he shouldn't be touching because they're too sinful. I, I think that one of the things we can do to grow in compassion for the lost is simply start here. Invite an unbeliever into your home to have a meal with them. But as you're engaging with believers, here's, here's another way you cultivate compassion for people. Ask, this is new and a novel concept for some of us because we're so used to talking about ourselves and our problems. Ask people about their lives and their problems. Uh, it never ceases to, me, to amaze me how people are so willing to open up if you simply ask them a few questions. If you simply just show interest in them, people will all of a sudden just unravel in front of you. And some of you are like, ooh, that's, that's too much for me to handle. I can't take it when people start crying in front of me, men, right? But you know, the reality is, is this, you really begin to grow in compassion for people when you actually begin to hear their heart, their struggles, their difficulties. Ask them questions, listen to their answers, hear their struggles, and feel their pain. As Jesus did this, he didn't decrease in compassion, he increased in compassion for them. He constantly ministered out of a heart of compassion. And if we're going to reach the lost for Jesus, if we're going to be a church culture of courageous evangelism, it requires that we seek the heart of God, a heart of compassion. Secondly, notice this. If we're going to have a culture of courageous evangelism, it requires that we see the helplessness of man. Verse 36 goes on to say, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Notice the reason, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. A very graphic description of Jesus, of what Jesus sees in the people that he's ministering to. You see, as Jesus looks at the crowd, he sees what they cannot see even about themselves. He understands some things that they don't understand about themselves. You see, he realizes and he sees that their greatest plight and their greatest problem is not physical, it's actually spiritual. The physical condition of those Jesus helped actually points to the spiritual condition of those Jesus came to save. Listen, when you're reading through the Gospels and you're seeing Jesus perform miracles, there's, there's a number of different things happening that we need to pick up on. One of them is this, that we see Jesus actually cares about people's physical condition and physical needs, and that's a good thing for us to embrace. 
The second thing that's happening is Jesus is demonstrating authority over what plagues humanity. Do you see that? Over demons, over sickness, over death. When Jesus heals, it is a statement that the king is here. The one who rules over all these things is going to show you he rules by showing his power over them. That's incredibly important to see. The third thing that's happening is that there is an inbreaking of the kingdom. The king is there, his power on display, and he's painting for people a picture of what his future kingdom will look like. A place where there is no more disease, there is no more pain, there is no more suffering, there is no more death. He's pointing them to the day when he will rule and reign on the earth, and none of these things will plague humanity anymore. They get a taste of that and a glimpse of that, but he's showing them, listen, in the moment, this is the fourth thing, he's showing them through this working of miracles that there is something greater they need to be concerned about. You see, their physical condition points to a spiritual problem. All of the physical pain and suffering in this world is a result of sin, every single part of it. And Jesus, in healing their physical condition, is teaching them that he desires to heal, first and foremost, their spiritual condition. And you can think of it like this. I'll put these up on the screen for you. First of all, when Jesus goes to the physically poor, here's what he's really teaching them, that they are spiritually poor. That they are spiritually poor, that they have nothing to offer for their salvation. When he goes to the physically crippled, here's in one sense what he's teaching them, that they are also spiritually crippled. They're made powerless by sin. When he goes to the physically blind, he's teaching them that they are, in reality, spiritually blind and unable to see the truth about Jesus, about themselves, about the world, about everything spiritual. And when he goes to the, spiritually, the physically lame, he's teaching them that they are also spiritually lame, that they're unable to come to God on their own. When people come and flock to Jesus for their physical concerns, it is a picture of what he desires. In his mercy and compassion, he desires the people to flock to him not just for their physical concerns, but more importantly, for their spiritual concerns. And Jesus looks at these people, and what he sees is the utter helplessness of man in their condition. He feels a deep emotional response to their helplessness as slaves that are living in bondage to sin. The word of God here says that they were harassed and helpless. That's the description that Jesus gives to these people. And this imagery is incredibly powerful. It is depicting shepherdless sheep. They are like sheep without a shepherd, Jesus says. The idea of being harassed paints this picture of being distressed. And you can visualize this. This is just chocked full of really powerful imagery. The distress is, is that they are battered and bruised sheep. It's like they have been torn apart by a ravenous beast. A predator has snuck in and utterly destroyed them. They are worn out and exhausted, mangled and torn apart. They are sheep who have been wounded by hostile animals. And now, now as Jesus looks at them, what he sees is, yes, people walking around looking like they're alive, but in reality, he sees their spiritual condition. They're like a wounded sheep that is lying in the fetal position, unable to do anything for itself. Sheep are notoriously known as being both defenseless animals and dumb animals. Aren't you thankful that that's the term that Jesus uses for us? They're defenseless. That's why in Psalm 23, the idea of the good shepherd is so important because without a shepherd, every sheep is vulnerable to attack. Sheep can't defend themselves. 
And you take away the threat of predators and they still are dumb. They actually need help finding food. They need a shepherd to lead them into green pastures. They need the provision of somebody looking out for them. All of this paints the picture of humanity in great danger without the resources to escape from the danger that they're in. And Jesus looks at these people and he sees their helplessness and he realizes that they are like sheep without a shepherd. And that, by the way, is a rebuke against the religious leaders of the day. God had given shepherds to the nation of Israel. He had given leaders to the nation. They were supposed to be shepherding them in truth and in righteousness. They were supposed to be caring for their physical needs and their spiritual needs. But the religion of the day had left the Israelites dejected and distressed, far from God. The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they offered a religion that added burdens to the people instead of lifting the burdens of the people. In fact, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, Jesus would say this about the religious leaders. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. In verse 13 of chapter 23, Jesus said this in a rebuke to the Pharisees, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. This is what the people were living in under the regime of the hypocritical Pharisees and scribes. Religion was present, but it was an exacting religion. It was a religion of external duties, external requirements. It led people away from any internal change and transformation. You see, sin is never cured by religion. Sin is an inner spiritual sickness that must be honestly acknowledged to be incurable by personal attempts at religious righteousness and exercise. Sin is cured only by the great physician. That's what Jesus is teaching us here in this passage. Sin is the real culprit behind humanity's suffering in every part. The crowds seem to want healing. Everybody flocks to Jesus. And one of the things you pick up on if you read through the New Testament, the crowds, they seem to want healing without attending to their deepest needs of salvation from sin. They want the benefits of healing externally. But but most, most don't want the inner healing. And to compound that problem, the crowds are harassed and helpless by these religious leaders who are oppressing them with religious activity that actually masks the problem of sin. See, anytime you try to fix your sin problem by simply going about it with external moral changes, all you're doing is you're masking the inner reality, the inner rot that sin has caused in your life. It's possible to become more concerned, by the way, When we think of evangelism and reaching out to people, it's possible to become more concerned about the physical condition of people than the spiritual condition of people. And let me say this loud and clear that both are required. The church is required, the people of God are required to be compassionate in meeting the needs physically of people, but also, and first and foremost, to be meeting the spiritual needs of people. I I remember being told years ago as I was talking with somebody about the gospel who was walking down a path of liberalism, liberalism in in rejecting the authority of scripture, the sufficiency of scripture, that they were wanting to make the gospel about helping people's physical needs. This is also called the social gospel. This is a common problem in the church today. The gospel is about meeting people's physical needs helping the poor, 
helping bring justice on the earth. Listen, none of those things are a bad thing. Listen, but they're not the main thing. And I remember this person telling me, listen, the gospel, you've, you've narrowed the gospel down and you, you, you just think it's some I, the personal salvation. Listen, the gospel is more, is way bigger than personal salvation to which I responded, yes, it is way bigger than personal salvation, but it's not less than personal salvation. The gospel is gonna revolutionize this whole entire universe. We realize that, church? The gospel is gonna make everything right in this universe. The blood of Jesus Christ is going to recreate this universe to make it what God intended it to be in the first place. But the recreation, the new creation, begins with personal salvation, personal redemption. It begins with the lost being saved. We must be those who care about both the physical needs and the spiritual needs, but let us never forget that right here, right now on this earth, the greatest need people have is not physical, it's spiritual. And this is why courageous evangelism requires, third, that we seek the hand of God. Because it's a spiritual reality that we are encountering, because it's a spiritual problem that we are facing, we need to seek spiritual resources. Jesus, in verses 37 and verses 38, says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. He, he looks across the people in, in all of their plights and all of their problems, and his response is compassion, but he sees that there is a bountiful harvest. The fields are white. They are ripe. People are desperate and longing and ready to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, to hear that there is salvation for their souls. The idea of, of harvest is used throughout Scripture, the, the theme of, of a harvest, that imagery was used repeatedly throughout the Old and the New Testament. In fact, most of the time it's used, this is really interesting, the idea of a harvest is used for a future judgment. God used this for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, and Jesus actually uses it in the New Testament. He reminds us that there is a future harvest coming in a negative sense. And here, in, in this passage, Jesus is using this in the positive sense. There is a, a positive harvest, a present harvest that is necessary right now. The harvest is ripe, and, and we need laborers for the harvest. That's what Jesus is getting at here. But for sure, I have to believe, listen, that the very concept of harvest would have just instantly brought to mind the reality of what the Word of God had already said about a future harvest. And I don't think that's unimportant. In fact, I really believe that's critical you see, thinking about the future harvest is something that actually fuels the present harvest. Jesus in Matthew 13, verse 30 said this. Listen to this. In the same book, just a few chapters later, he would talk about a harvest. He said, let both grow together until the harvest. This is the wheat and the tares. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat to my barn." In Revelation 14, 19, at the end of all things, listen to what the word of God says. So the angel, this is speaking, listen, of the final judgment, the wrath of God upon the earth. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and he gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of God's wrath. You see, listen, I'm just telling you this to remind you, church, listen, why do we evangelize? Because why do we care about the harvest here and now? Because there is coming a day where there will be a harvest, where God will come with a sword out of his mouth, where he will send his angels as reapers and he will gather into his winepress those who will then experience 
the full measure of his wrath against sin. There is a hell. There is a wrath of God that is to come. And it's important that we understand what's at stake here, church. Listen, I know hell and God's wrath are not fun topics to talk about. I take no pleasure in talking about them. Listen, but they're such important topics to be contemplating on a regular basis. Listen, every person out there is gonna live in one of two realities. They're gonna live under the blessing of God and in his joy forevermore, or they're going to live under the wrath of God and pay for their sins forevermore. And listen, the weight of that needs to come into our focus when we think about our responsibility and our joy in evangelism. You see, we have the privilege of calling people away from that final harvest. Isn't that awesome? And into a much better harvest. We have the privilege of calling people away from experiencing the wrath of God and into experiencing the blessing of God. And that's exactly what Jesus is calling his disciples to participate in. Listen, he says to his disciples, you can help people avoid this future harvest by telling them about the harvest that is right now. And he looks out and he sees that the harvest is, is ripe and plentiful and abundant, but there's one problem. There's one problem. Did you know, look at the word of God with me. What's the problem, church? The harvest is plentiful, but what's the big problem? The laborers are so few. It's like Jesus is looking around, look, look at all these people, but where are the laborers? You know, you know this is the season fall, right, where, where a lot of harvesting takes place. And, and, and generally, usually as a family, every year, our, our extended family, we go apple picking together. Maybe many of you do that same thing. And, and right now is the time where the apples are ripe. They're ready to be picked. They're rather to, ready to be gathered in. Can you imagine walking to an apple orchard and seeing thousands and thousands of apple trees and looking across the trees and seeing all of the beautiful, ripe apples? They're just ready to be picked. They fall off the tree. And can you imagine looking across at that and then realizing that you're standing there all by yourself and you know there's a limited time window, a time frame, to be able to go and gather up all these apples before they're entirely ruined, before they fall off the tree and they rot and they're worthless and they're no good. And can you imagine being the only one looking across this vast array of trees and ripe apples and then beginning to think, how am I going to gather all of these apples in? I'm I'm just one man. I mean, what's, what's the answer? Just run harder, run faster. You can just quickly grab as many apples as you can and maybe you'll cover the whole thing. Jesus looks across the world, listen, and he says the harvest is ripe. It's ready. But the workers are few. So what's, what's the answer? Well, well, let's get going, right? Let's just start running and, and picking apples as fast as we can. Let's just go out and reap the harvest, right? Wrong. Kind of. Jesus gives the answer. Do you see it? This is, this is listen, this is, this is revolutionary for evangelism right here. I wonder if you've ever caught this before. Listen, oftentimes we hear sermons on evangelism, and, and I've been guilty of this. I say, you know what? We just need to go out there and evangelize. We just need yes, but no. Listen, listen to what Jesus says first. First. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into 
his harvest. This is the only time that pray earnestly is used in all of the New Testament. So why does that matter? Because this is loaded, do you see this, with a sense of urgency, a sense of passion, a sense of commitment. We can be earnest about a lot of things, church. We can be earnest about a lot of good things, but are we earnest about the best thing? Are we earnest about praying? Are we earnest about praying in particular? Listen, isn't this so fascinating? He doesn't say, pray for the lost souls. Did you catch that? But That's a good thing, amen? Okay, we, we pray for lost souls. We rightly show there's plenty of places in scripture. That say, but did you notice where the first prayer is for here? Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Who's that? That's God the Father. Pray to God and ask that God would send out laborers into the harvest. Pray earnestly. Get on your face. Get on your knees and pray, God, God, the fields are too great for uh, this few people. Bring more people, Lord, who are going to go out to reach more people. Do you see that there? It's been said before that before we can talk to men about God, we must talk to God about men. Somebody said it like this, when the going gets tough, the tough get on their knees. Our first and greatest work, church, is the work of prayer. It is. Waiting on the Lord is a crucial part of the first part of serving him. See, in one sense, this isn't about us working more. It's about more workers. And yes, the two overlap. And yes, they are both important. But let's see where the priority lies in our prayers and in our efforts. God is looking for more workers. He's looking for more laborers. There are so many parables that Jesus gives to his disciples about gathering workers And he uses agricultural kind of language, working on a farm, servants who work, and they're gathered in at different points. But all of them are working towards the same goal, the same kind of job. And I just wonder, church, if I can ask you, are you earnestly praying for this right here? Are you earnestly praying that God would send out more laborers into the field? I want to encourage us this morning, listen, to pray for more. Let's be a church that prays for more. We want to see people reach for Christ and it begins here. It begins on our knees praying for more. God, more, more people coming to know you so that they can go out and tell people about you. In one sense, listen, you're going to see this in a minute, but I just want to, this is in some sense a dangerous prayer to pray. Some of you are like, yeah, I want to pray for more workers because I don't want to do that much work. That's not what this means. In, in fact, listen, part of what this actually implies is that you're actually praying for yourself. One commentator said that this, this prayer actually potentially indicates that this is a prayer to light a fire under those who are already saved to continue to do the work of the ministry. So when you pray this prayer, in one sense you're praying, yes, that God adds more, but you're praying that God would use you more. That's what the Apostle Paul prayed. Colossians 3, Ephesians 6, pray for me also, pray for me also. And he constantly prayed, God, pray that God would open up doors, would give me more opportunities. You see, it was a prayer to be used greatly by God, and I just, I want to encourage some of you, some of your prayers need to be for more labor, some of your prayers need to be for more dedication from yourselves, you need to be going to God and saying, God, God, I've failed in this. Listen, this is a really important moment for some of you. Some of you are looking at your life, and maybe if I can just ask you, when was the last time you shared the gospel with anybody? Is that a fair question? It's a fair question, isn't it? 
when was the last time you shared the gospel with anybody? I mean, to our shame, isn't it true that to our shame, some of us can, can actually look at our lives and say, well, man, it's been a really long time. And listen, this isn't a guilt trip. This is just simply to, to look in the mirror and to see, like, are we living the life that Jesus called us to live? Are we focused on the right things? That's an important question to ask. When was the last time we shared Christ with anybody? Some of us need to be praying for more dedication to the call of God on our lives. Some of us need to be praying for more courage to be bold, for more opportunities. And listen, the more you pray about this, these things, just believe me right now, believe me, the more you pray about these things, the more you pray for opportunities, every day, if you get up and you start praying, I promise you, every day you get up and say, God, give me an opportunity to witness for Jesus Christ today. I promise you, not a single day will go by where God will not answer that prayer. You wanna know why? Because every day you're gonna come in contact with somebody, somebody who doesn't know Jesus. Part of this here is, is to see finally what Jesus points us to, is to see the hope of man. You see, courageous evangelism, this is going to be our culture, listen, requires that we see the hope of man. And I know what some of you think, I, oh, the hope of man is the gospel. Yes, but listen, it's more than that. Who is it that carries the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Remember, you remember what Paul quotes from Isaiah in Romans chapter 11, or, or chapter 10, excuse me, uh, how blessed are the feet of those who carry the good news. And it's interesting what happens right after Jesus gives this command to, to, to pray earnestly that God would send out laborers into his harvest. Look at how this text turns. Some of us, we missed this. Do you see exactly what Jesus does here? He then goes in and he called to himself his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every... You say, what's happening there? And then he lists the 12. What's happening there? Jesus is empowering them to do the very thing that he came to do. Do you see that? And then probably the most important, verse five, listen to this, these 12 Jesus, listen to these words, sent out. Church, do you, do, you, do you see what's happening here? They pray the prayer, and then Jesus turns to them, and he says to them, you are the answer. You are the answer. And the disciples here are the first followers of Jesus, and they're, the, they're the, the prototype of the church. We follow in their footsteps. We are a byproduct of how God has worked through them to faithfully fulfill the call and sent them out. We're the byproduct, and we carry on that ministry, and we carry on the legacy of Jesus Christ. You see, church, we are the answer. <laughs> We, the church, are the hope of the world. We, the church, the body and bride of Christ, we carry the message of hope, the hope of salvation and redemption. We are the hope of man. Christ in us, the hope of glory. So what, what's the evangelism strategy of the church? You. You. You are our evangelism strategy. Do you realize that? You go to school with people. You work beside people. You live across from people. You are the evangelism strategy of the church. And this isn't just our church. This is the message of Jesus. You see, in God's sovereignty, and this is so important for some of us to really recognize this morning, in God's sovereignty, what's going on in history is that God is reaching out to people so that they will reach out for him. 
the reason your neighbor, listen, the reason your neighbor lives where they do is so that they will be reached by the gospel. Why did God want a Christian, you, in your workplace? You thought about that before? Yes, so that you can bless your boss and your co-workers by working hard and diligently and faithfully. But more than that, listen church, it's so that they can hear the gospel. It is no accident that you know the people you do. It's no accident that you're in their path. They need the gospel. You know the gospel. God wants them to hear the gospel. So go and tell them the gospel. Uh, by the way, some of you, I know what you're thinking. You're wrestling through, uh, well, well, how do I know if my evangelism is going to be effective and how do I know if I'm going to be successful in God's eyes? Listen, it's, it's, this is just to help you, okay? Our job is not to convert people, amen? <laughs> it is to witness to Christ. And you will be my witnesses, Jesus said to his disciples. Conversion, this is so helpful. Conversion isn't the mark of successful witness. Listen, witnessing is. Witnessing is a mark of successful witnessing. You have not failed if you explain the gospel and you are rejected. You have failed if you don't even try. Now, the truth is, is that if you are going to be courageous in your evangelism, you are going to be met with at least two responses. Rico Tyson, his book, Honest Evangelism, highlights these, these two realities, and I think they're just important for us to maybe be aware of. The first is this hostility. Some of you are like, well, this is going to be great. Everybody's going to love the message of Jesus. Wrong, right? Just wrong. We live in a world that is hostile to the message of the gospel. You will get hit. Just prepare for it. Rico Tice calls this crossing the pain line. If you know that there's a line of pain, right, you can at least know that you got to get across it. You will, listen, just church, just embrace this already. If you're a follower of Christ and you're going to be sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will be mocked, you'll be ridiculed, you'll be rejected, you'll be hated. It will cost you much to be faithful to Jesus Christ and for what is right and true. You may lose friends, you may lose family members, you may lose jobs, and yes, you may even lose your own life. And if you're going to talk to people about Jesus, you're going to get hurt. But the church is called to be a prophetic witness in this world. Do you realize that? We, the church, are called to be a voice crying out in the wilderness, in a, in a world and in a culture that is hating God and rejecting God. We come with the power of the Spirit of God with us, and we cry out. There is hope. There is life. Sin is sin, and grace is grace. Come and experience the love of the Father through Jesus Christ. The church has a prophetic voice in the world. We come into this world and we declare that sin is real, but salvation is waiting. And if we are going to be faithful in our prophetic witness, church, as, as individuals, but as a church, it will put us in direct conflict with Satan. There are some of us in here who actually believe that if we tell the truth to people, if we tell the truth about their sin, you know, if we actually tell them that they're living in ungodly lifestyles, if they're living in a way that is uh, of conflicting with truth and reality of who God is, if we tell them that they live in a way that actually is rebelling against God Almighty and God calls it sin, some of us actually believe that that will ruin our witness. You ever heard people talk like that? Well, I, I can't tell people the truth. I'm, I, I don't want to ruin my witness. If, if I tell them that the, what they're doing is sin, I'll just I'll ruin my witness and I'll lose my opportunity. Your opportunity for what? 
Telling the truth does not get in the way of Christian witness. Telling the truth is Christian witness. We are called to speak the truth in love. That's what the relationship is for, isn't it? I mean, just think about that for a minute. Uh, so, so many people are so busy building relationships and waiting so long to get to the gospel. And listen, I'm all for building relationships. But just realize that's what the relationship is for. That's why you go for coffee. That's why you watch sports together. That's why you knit and crochet together, if that's your thing. Th- that's why you contextualize. That's why right, you befriend people. The relationship is for a reason. And that reason is so that they can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the reason the relationship exists so that you can tell the truth. You have one job to do, church. Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. And if we're honest, the reason we don't share the gospel is because we love ourselves more than we love others and we love our Lord. It costs us too much, puts us out of our comfort zone. There's a desperate need for courageous Christianity, for courageous evangelism. That means not shying away from telling sinners about their sin so that we can tell them the incredible news about the Savior. And you see, if you're willing to push through the hostility aspect, you can be met with this. Listen, some, some of us need to, need to hear this this morning. Uh, you can be met by this response, hunger, hunger. Do you realize, when Jesus, when Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, he wasn't lying. <laughs> some of us believe Jesus... Well, that's not true. There's nobody out there who's hungry. Are you kidding me? Jesus was telling the truth. There is a hunger out there, and I believe based on our culture that that hunger is actually increasing. The the increasing hostility to the gospel message that requires a courageous evangelism is real. Listen, it's risky. It's dangerous in one sense, but if you quit because you get hit, you will miss the plentiful harvest and you'll miss the hunger that is growing inside the hearts of so many. You see, there is an increased hunger. The same rising tide of secularism and materialism that rejects truth claims, that is offended by absolute moral standards, is proving to be an empty and hollow way to live. People are trying out the world's way and what they're finding is this, this is bankrupt. It's hollow, it's empty, it's providing nothing for me. And people are instead turning back to truth, hungering for what really matters most. And that means you're more likely to find people quietly hungering for the content of the gospel, even as our culture teaches them to be increasingly hostile to it. You have to risk hostility to discover the hunger. And here's here's the best part. Jesus in Luke 15, verse 5 and 7, you don't have to turn there, just listen. He's telling the story of, you know, the 99 sheep and the one that goes astray and he rescues it. And here's what it says. This is so amazing. He says, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You see, God is the great evangelist. God is the great seeker and finder of people. By his grace, he's called his followers to the same pursuit and the same emotion, the same heart and passion for the lost 
And you see, there is a kind of soaring joy in seeing the Lord seek and find lost people. There is a kind of, of heightened and increased joy in being part of the process to be used by God. Church, we don't have to share Jesus. We get to share Jesus. And the need remains right now as urgent as it ever has been with billions of people around the world who have not heard the gospel or the name of Jesus Christ. Some of those people are on the other side of the world. Some of those people are on the other side of your street. The harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Church, we are the few that God has called to go and reach the many.